So let's go ahead and open up to the Word of God. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to be, last week we looked at chapter 13. We didn't get very far. This is a a pivotal chapter in the Bible. Let's read it again. Just the first 10 verses. Next week, we're going to be looking at the false prophet. Isn't that a wonderful topic? What did you guys discuss today? We talked about the false prophet. Isn't that wonderful? Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about the beast or the Antichrist. Two characters in the Bible that there is uh, actually quite a bit about the Antichrist, not so much about the false prophet, but this is a figure in history that is going to uh, bring about the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And it's because of his shenanigans and his taking over world dominance and his desire to be worshipped. And God is going to allow him a season to get what he wants, although the world won't be completely in agreement with him. He'll have battles all right up to the very end. And then frustrated and angry, the Lord is going to return and take over. And we will come back with him on white horses. I love that. But this character in history is diabolical. This character is malevolent. This character is one who's about to show up on the scene. In fact, as soon as the church is removed, it tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that When we are removed from this earth, when the restrainer is done restraining and the Spirit of God is, uh, we are taken up, that he will be revealed at that time. So there's no use in trying to figure out who he is. We know at the end of this chapter, there is a a really wonderful thing that says, you know, that he's a, his his number is 666, the, the number of a man or the number of his name. And people throughout, you know, decade or actually millennia, or maybe not millennia, maybe a couple, uh, have tried to figure out who this is, who this character is. There's no sense in worrying about who he is because you're not going to figure it out because he's not going to be revealed until we're, we're out of here. And it has to be that way. And so let's read this. First 10 verses. John said, Then he, speaking of the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns... Ten crowns, and on his head, heads, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And if anyone has ears, has an ear to hear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Let's go back to verse 1. Last week we talked about this this beast from the sea, and we know that this is uh, the revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire really dissolved or really fell in 476 AD, and uh, since then... It's been very dormant. It's been laying dormant for a time yet future to us after the church is removed. Uh, Daniel, if you remember, when we were together last week in Daniel chapter 2, God had given Nebuchadnezzar, actually, a vision of a statue. And that statue had a head of gold, which symbolized Babylon, amidst uh, arms and a chest of uh, silver, which is Persia, uh, thighs of brass, which is the Greek Uh, under Alexander the Great, and then the legs of of iron signified Rome, and then we had the iron mixed with clay, which is the ten toes of the two feet, 
Speaking of these ten horns that we're going to be speaking to, the ten toes and the ten horns, they mean the same thing. It's a revived Roman Empire that hasn't yet come up on the scene. And so we looked at that, and we looked at Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 8. And we looked at Daniel chapter 7, 19 through 27. And Daniel 7 and Revelation 7 actually give us a lot of clues of who these are. Daniel 7 gives us more clear information of who the ten horns are, but doesn't really tell us much about the seven heads. But Revelation chapter 17, and we will be getting there in a a month or so or two, (laughs) that tells us more about not only the ten horns, but it identifies the seven heads. And these seven heads, we defined them last week by looking at those scriptures. These seven heads are seven hills or seven mountains upon which the woman sets. The woman, who we'll find out later when we get into the book of Revelation, is an apostate religion. The woman is a a harlot, the Bible calls her, a prostitute, because she has prostituted herself with the kings of the earth, And it is an apostate religion, a religion that accepts everything. Everything is okay. As long as you believe in something, believe in yourself. Believe in Allah. Believe in Buddha. Believe in David Koresh. Believe in whoever. (laughs) Anything goes. And here we are together embracing this one great thing. That is the apostate religion. And do you know the remnants of it, the, the beginnings of it, are already here. They've been going, oh, it's going so well. It's going so well. That's why this church is so different than some churches, not all churches, certainly. We're not the only ones. But may we teach the word of God and be in it. That, that is the reason we're here, is to be built up in the word of God, to worship together, to fellowship together, to pray together, that we might be built up, that our faith might be built up. But Revelation... Uh, seven tells, uh, 17 excuse me, tells us that these seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So there is a city yet in the future that is going to be where the apostate religion is going to be uh, headquartered. And we believe that it's probably going to be either Babylon or more than likely Rome. We don't really have time to go in this today. We'll look at it when we get to 17 and 18 in those two chapters. But there is plenty to divulge about the apostate church, and where the church in Rome right now is going. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church. They are embracing many things. The popes have been embracing many things. Even going so far as to say that Jesus is not the only way. And that ought to shock you. For any Catholic in this country to hear those words, they should be running out in droves. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. But they teach a lot of other things too. And they should be ashamed of themselves. God is going to hold them accountable. But I believe, I believe that that is going to be the, the center of apostate religion. And it's going to encompass Buddhism, Hinduism, all the Eastern religions. Everything's going to be together. And the Antichrist is going to be be, uh, subjected, in a sense, to it for a season. He's going to allow that to happen until he turns on her, this apostate religion. We'll look at that later. But it also uh, tells us that these seven kings are also, uh, or these uh, seven horns, or seven, um, uh, seven heads, excuse me, are seven kings. And some have looked at these seven heads as representing world empires, specifically Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then finally this revived Roman Empire. It could be. It could be. In fact, in Revelation 17, it says this, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, and one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. There's a lot of mystery about these seven kings. And as much as I have looked into this, uh, there's not a real clear answer. We just have to take it that it's seven kings. Maybe it's the seven kings that are going to be a part of this revived Roman Empire initially 
because we know that that is probably the truth. And the Antichrist, who is not going to be called the Antichrist, he's just going to be called a man. He's going to be a man with a lot of power, a lot of wisdom. He's going to be empowered by Satan himself. And let me tell you, you've never seen anybody empowered by the devil himself. And you may be shocked to learn and see that he's not going to be foaming at the mouth and spitting. You may be shocked to know that he's not going to be writhing on the ground being possessed by the devil. No, the devil, he can take over a person and they can be the most influential, most charismatic leader the world has ever seen. And I believe that's the way it's going to be. In Revelation 12, we looked, at, uh, we looked at the week before last. It said, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, heaven's seven heads and ten horns. In Revelation 17, we just read it, that this, uh, this woman sitting on a scarlet beast's head was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. In Revelation 17, we see the same thing. We hear about the seven heads and the ten horns. And it tells us the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Also seven kings, five had fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. The ten horns are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. We believe that's going to be at the very end or, or somewhere um, uh, uh, at some point when he has this Roman Empire, perhaps, perhaps these seven kings... There's going to be another 10 that are going to have authority for one hour and they are going to give or secede their power and authority to the Antichrist. It's interesting that on September 13th, 1973, there's an organization called the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome. They divided the world up into 10 different kingdoms and they actually removed the word kingdoms on purpose because they didn't want their, their true colors to, to, to be shown, but they divided up the world into 10 different kingdoms, and then the United Nations came along and basically codified it and established the idea, and these are the 10 kingdoms that the Club of Rome had adopted. And also, the, uh, we look at this other map, and we can see the United Nations uh, agreed with that. And so the world is divided up into these ten different regions. Could it be that at the, at the end, when the Antichrist comes to power, these ten kings, these ten kingdoms, will yield their power to one? And in Eastern Europe, or Western Europe, where the Antichrist will be seated, Perhaps there'll be seven kings in seven countries, perhaps Germany, perhaps certainly Italy, France, England, and a few others, the most influential. Perhaps they are going to be with him, and then these other ten kingdoms are going to yield their power. It's just a, a possibility, but I think it's interesting that there is already in in, on, in the plans, and have been for decades now, this, this map of ten regions in the world. Notice in verse 2 of our text this morning, it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So this beast, he's, a, he's not only a, uh, a conglomerate of nations over, overseeing a group of, uh, of the world, really, but he's also a man. He's a man, but he also is over many, many countries. And notice the animals that are listed here. It lists a leopard, and then a bear, and then finally a lion. The animals here are in a certain order on purpose. Because if you remember, when we looked at Daniel chapter 7, Daniel uh, revealed to us this very same thing, that the lion was Babylon, that the bear was Medo and Persia, the Medes and the Persians, and that the leopard was the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. But now, as John is portraying this, he's looking at it in reverse order. So the very first one that we see in that list there, we, we, we see the, the leopard, because that was the last kingdom. And then, going back further than that, the bear, signifying Medo-Persia, and finally the lion, Rome. So he just reverses the order based on the chronology of when those kingdoms came. And notice this beast had likenesses of these four different 
empires. You know, they each had characteristics. One of the characteristics of the Greek empire was the swiftness in which they took over Babylon, over the Medes and the Persians, who had conquered Babylon and, 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 um, and Nebuchadnezzar. With speed and great accuracy, pinpoint, and just overwhelm them so quickly. And, and the others have characteristics too, but this one beast, this final beast that's going to come on the scene, this fourth beast that is yet to come, is going to have likenesses of all those together. Think of it as a, a, a conglomerate of those beasts, all in one, this fearsome beast. In fact, Daniel just said, this thing is ferocious. It's just stamping its feet, mashing the residue, everything that's in its way. And he makes it very clear that there's two different waves to this. The Roman Empire is already gone, but the remnants are already still in Europe, and they're just waiting, dormant, waiting, dormant, until the time comes. The church is removed, and this man of sin raises up. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to start right there. And I believe he's going to... Uh, start in Rome. In verse 3 it says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And notice, all the world marveled and they followed the beast. Some believe that this one world ruler will have an assassination attempt uh, upon him that's going to take his life, and that he's going to physically die, and he's going to go to hell. He's going to go to the abyss. And from there, Satan is going to be allowed to, to bring this demon from the abyss, and he's going to come up and he's going to resurrect this man whose body will still be laying somewhere, and he's going to inhabit him. He's going to physically come into him. counterfeiting certainly the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things about the Antichrist is he is all about counterfeiting. There's nothing new. There's nothing original with him. The best way he can deceive people is to put himself in place of Christ. If he was outright opposing him, everyone would notice who he was and be skeptical. But no, he takes the place of. And we looked at the satanic trinity last week. The beast, or the, the, um, the dragon, the devil himself, and then the beast, the antichrist, and then finally the false prophet. Each one of these function in part like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and their worship is very similar too. The false prophet we'll see next week gives glory to the beast, and the beast gives glory to the dragon. It's the same thing with the Spirit of God and Jesus. Jesus always gave glory to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is to bring us to worship Jesus. And so there's nothing new here. It's just a counterfeit. And it's going to be a really good counterfeit. And the world is going to be amazed. Because guess what, folks? You and I read the Bible, but there is a vast majority of people out there that have never read the Scripture at all. They don't even care. They don't even want it. And so when these things come, they're going to be completely blindsided. Completely blindsided. And that's why our mandate is to go out. What was the very last thing Jesus said to us? Go and make disciples in all nations. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And lo, I will be with you always. And see, those marching orders have never changed. We still need to be doing that. But this Antichrist will be indwelt by the devil himself, or at least some very strong, very important demon in the underworld. Some believe that this, is, that this, uh, this wound and this beast that's wounded is, is the, res the resurrection of the Roman Empire. It could be, but I think it speaks very clearly that it is a person. It's a very person. That's also true, by the way, because it's going to be resurrected. So it could mean that, but I think it means more than that. And still others believe that there will be a man who has already died that Satan will be allowed to resurrect, counterfeiting the true resurrection. And can Satan do this? Can he do this? God can allow him to do this if he so chooses. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have been partaker of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, speaking of Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil has the power of death. 
He has the power of death. And I'm sure God is not going to be the one that's going to resurrect this one, but he may allow this one to be resurrected. He certainly is going to at least allow it because it's going to happen. Is it possible for Satan to resurrect? Is it possible that he would resurrect Judas Iscariot? Wouldn't that be interesting? Judas Iscariot. The Antichrist and Judas were both called the son of perdition. This is just a, uh, a possibility, okay? This is not a thus saith the Lord by any means. But it is interesting that the son of perdition, that certainly the Antichrist is called that, and so was Judas. Jesus also called him a devil in John chapter 60, verse 70. What did he say? Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Diabolos? One of you is a devil. That's what he said. And then Luke 22, verse 3, then Satan entered Judas. Notice, Satan entered Judas. It's never happened before. Satan inhabiting a person. Demons, yes, demons have inhabited people. They've been possessed by the devil. But Satan himself? Oh. Talk about a great deceiver and one that will just dazzle your socks off. If he were to come, we would all be surprised. We'd be like dropping our jaws. Ladies, he'd probably be handsome. He would be a statesman. He would speak eloquently. He would be educated. He would look great. He would sound great. It would even feel great being around him for a season till he is, till his cover is blown. In John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, it says, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Speaking of Judas. Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So could it be? It could be. It could be that it's, it's a man that's going to be alive soon after the church is removed. He's going to be an adult. He could die. He could be, the Satan could enter him. Or it could be somebody else in history that has died already that God is going to allow him to be resurrected with the, with the, with the very devil himself operating the man. What about Antiochus Epiphanes during the second century? He was a great model for the Antichrist. He was the one, if you remember, who was, I think, the great-great-grandson of, of, of or, you know, one of the generals in Alexander's army after Alexander's uh, empire uh, dissolved. Remember, it was broken up into four different generals. Well, one of those generals was a Seleucid, and I think it was either his grandson or his great-grandson was named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he was the one who went to Jerusalem, and he sacked Jerusalem, and he put a, 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 an image uh, of himself in the temple. He slaughtered pigs on the temple altar, and he killed the Jews and demanded to be worshipped. This man, could it be that he could be resurrected? It'd be interesting if it was. Can you imagine that? You got another shot at it, buddy. <laughs> Can you imagine? We don't really know. But notice it says that his deadly wound was healed. In Revelation 13, verse 2, or verse 12, we'll see that next week, that the false prophet, he exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it, notice, to worship the first beast. Notice that. He causes all on the earth. This is one world religion, folks. Do you think there's a one world religion that's coming? Do you think one is being groomed right now, ready, so that when this, all this comes to pass, it's going to fit in like a jigsaw puzzle? It's going to lock right in place. If you're going to a church that is not teaching the word of God, if you're going to a church that's teaching some other Jesus, if you're going to a church that's not teaching Christ and him crucified and resurrected and soon coming back for us, you better leave. Because so many people are being lulled to sleep by false doctrine. Also in Revelation 13, verse 14, it says that, and he deceives those, the, this false prophet who we'll look at next week, he deceives all those who dwell on the earth by those signs that he was granted, he was granted to do, notice, in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was wounded by the sword. In Revelation 17, verse 8, it says, the beast that you saw was, you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit or the abyss 
and will go to perdition. That's ultimately where his final resting place is going to be. We read about it in Revelation 20. When Jesus comes back, the false prophet and the beast are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Gehenna, we call it. It is the final resting place for the wicked dead for eternity, where there will be torment forever, evermore. It was never designed for human beings, by the way, but it was designed for the devil and his angels. But yet God will put people there who have rejected him. But it wasn't designed for them. It was designed for the beast and the devil, who will ultimately, Satan, he will be thrown in that pit as well, into that Lake of fire at the end, along with the false prophet, along with the beast. The three of them, one big happy trio. Can you imagine that conversation? Hmm. In Zechariah chapter 11, something really wonderful. I love Zechariah. It's one of those Old Testament prophets that has more about the end times than sometimes the books in the New Testament. I think of Zechariah as almost being a New Testament book because there's so much in it concerning the second coming of Christ and the time during the tribulation period. In Zechariah, it says this, For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land. And the land is usually spoken of in, in Jerusalem or in Israel. Which shall not visit those who shall be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that is broken, nor feed that that stands still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd. That's not a spelling error. Idle shepherd. He's not idle in the sense that he's got time on his hands. No, an idle shepherd is someone who is idolized. We know what an idol is. Notice, woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. Here's a prophecy of probably how this deadly wound is going to come about. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So he's going to survive some attempt, probably with a sword. And who knows how that could happen. They could be in a boardroom and there could be one on the wall and some one of the guys who among the ten are going to be like, I've had it with you, <laughs> come up behind him and go to take his head off and he glances just in time to have his arm cut off so bad or to wound, be wounded so bad. And then maybe he comes back and hits him in the eye and his eye is, his right eye is taken out. He is going to be an idle shepherd because this shepherd, this idle shepherd, is going to put an image of himself. The beast, or the false prophet, excuse me, is going to see to it that an image is placed in the, the temple for everyone to worship. Everyone will see it. And I'm going to show you something next week that's going to blow your mind. It's an article that I found, and this is the real deal. I, I've got the source. You can look at it, find it yourself. It's going to blow you away, but I'm going to, hold, I'm going to leave you hanging there. Isn't that nice? It's like a sitcom, isn't it? You get right to the end, you're like, mm. no, I'm serious. This is going to make what I'm saying, what's, what's said in the word right now, it's going to blow your mind. You're going to be like, oh my, people are ready for this. We'll look at this. But we have to remember that it's this beast, this antichrist. Daniel said it the best in verse 27 of chapter 9. He says, the beast shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, a period of seven years. In the middle of the week, this week of years, in the middle of that three and a half year period, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. Why? Because he wants to be worshipped. He gave the Jews their opportunity to build their temple and to have their worship services. But when he is finally ready to reveal himself, he's going to cause those sacrifices, those offerings to cease. He is going to be worshipped. He's going to seek to be worshipped. And this is going to cause a big stink. It's going to be a big stink. And there are going to be many who aren't going to be excited about that either. But this passage in Zechariah shows us the character of this one. And Israel, they rejected the good shepherd, and instead they are going to embrace this idle shepherd. The Jews still believe that the Messiah has not yet come. So when this Antichrist, this beast, comes to the scene, they're going to openly embrace him. And there's going to be a problem, because we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, actually. I'm going to leave you another hanger. Like I said before, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they've got everything ready. 
everything ready. They're ready to build their temple. And when this individual gives them the ability to do it, they're going to love him. And between him and the false prophet, they are going to embrace them both. And it's going to be amazing. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 43. He told the Jews, he says, I have come in my Father's name, in Jehovah's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And that is exactly what's going to happen, folks. That's the tragedy about the Jewish people today. Many of them, some believe in Israel, there are some born-again Jews. Amir Sarfati, our good friend, is one of them. But there are many who don't. They don't believe that he came the first time. They've been deceived, but they will embrace this master deceiver, this one who will come on the scene. So is this beast, is he a Jew or a Gentile? I would like to think that if the Jews are going to embrace him, certainly they know their scripture, he's going to have to be a Jew, right? Could be, could be. Some think that he will be a Jew. In fact, in Daniel chapter 11, Speaking of the, this beast, Daniel speaks and says, Then the king shall do, and this is Daniel 11, verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Notice, every god. This is the Antichrist. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. Okay, He knows that there is a god of gods. Isn't that true? It's not like he doesn't know the truth. He knows the truth, but he's so bent on overthrowing him and desiring to have worship above him, it's lunacy, it's insanity. I mean, think about it. If you were a created being, someone created you, and you look at that being and say, I'm better than you, and I'm going to rise above you. That's like a Ford truck coming off the Ford plant, you know, coming off the, uh, off the line and then exalting itself above the company who made it. And it's even more lunacy, more crazy than that, because we're talking about Almighty God here. But notice it says that he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of God, I'm sorry, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. This word God here is Elohim in verse 37 there. He shall regard, neither regard the God of his fathers. This word, God of his fathers, is something that's very well known to the Jew. It was in Exodus 3, verse 15. It says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers. This is a very Jewish phrase, the God of your fathers. So could it be that this Antichrist is a Jew? It could be. It could be. Some think that he will not be a Jew because... He is actually the final Gentile ruler. Maybe he's half Jew. We don't really know. I guess it's really silly to speculate. And it doesn't really matter. Either way, they're going to be deceived greatly. And this beast that we're, we're going to, this other beast that we're going to talk about next week, this false prophet, comes from the land who many think is the land of Israel. And if that's the case, maybe that's why they will receive him because this one is going to be very cunning, and perhaps he will be a Jew, and perhaps that will further sear their conscience to embrace him nonetheless. And notice what it says here. Neither, he shall neither, neither regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. This word desire of women could be a title, actually. The desire of women could be Jesus. He's going to turn his back completely on the Messiah and the promises that the Messiah has made in the scripture. I mean, how many promises are in the Bible? There's quite a few. And there's still yet promises that are yet to be fulfilled. So he's not going to regard the God of his fathers. And he's also not going to re regard the desire of women. Which, again, it could be, speaking of a title, the desire of women, the Messiah, every Hebrew young lady desired to be the mother of Jesus because they knew the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin, the virgin will conceive. Not just a virgin, the virgin. There's a specific virgin. Or it could mean that he's a homosexual. 
You know, if it doesn't mean that, then it means that he, he doesn't have any, any desire for women. Could he be gay? Or maybe he just doesn't have any desire at all. And this would be interesting because if he didn't, this would be a, a, a great distraction for a man of that power, coming into that much power. If he did have a desire for women, he'd have a problem. But he doesn't have a desire for women. Could it be that he's just, he doesn't really have any, he's, he looks at a woman and he's like, there's nothing going on, just flat line, you know. Where normal men, they see a woman, you know, heart starts to beat. He's just like, eh, I could, eh, whatever. Could it be? So they worship, verse 4, the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? He's going to be a strong military leader. And this has always been the dragon. This has always been Satan's desire for a very long time is to be worshipped. To be worshipped. You recall in Isaiah chapter 14, this is what Satan said in his heart. It's recorded for us in verse 13. For you have said in your heart, God speaking to Satan, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, of Jehovah. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. We call it the five I wills of Satan. His will was to rise above, wanted to be worshipped so bad, so bad. Satan has always wanted to receive worship. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, it says in Matthew 4, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will just fall down just once. Just once. I want everybody to see it, though. We're going to have CNN and MSNBC, Fox News. They're all going to be right there. Just once. I want, see, I want people to see it. I'll give, you don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. I'll give it all to you. Just worship me. Just bow down just this once in front of the camera. And Jesus said, away with you. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he was given, back in our text, he was given a mouth speaking great things, great blasphemies. And he was given, notice, given, underline that word given. He was given and he was given, underline that. That means that by permission, by God's sovereign will, his grace, actually it's not even his grace, he's, just, he's allowing this to happen. He could allow it not to happen. But understand this, this is the frustrating thing for the devil because he knows what's coming but he hates so greatly that he's willing to sacrifice it all because of his great hate. Have you known somebody, they, they hate something so bad they're willing to sacrifice something that's uh, even more important to them? We've seen this in Daniel. We looked at it uh, last week. We looked at it some. That he was, in Daniel 7, verse 8, you know, while Daniel was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one, speaking of the Antichrist, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Pompous words. Daniel seven eleven. I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words that the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. That's ultimately his destiny. That's where he's going to go. God is going to, when Jesus shows up on the earth in his second coming, the beast, the Antichrist, is going to be cast into the lake of fire where the false prophet will be as well. In Daniel 7, verse 25, it says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. And then it says, And then the saints shall be giving into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That phrase should remind you of how many years? Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. They're all equivalent. You see it throughout the scripture, speaking of this last three and a half year period, which is going to be so bad that Jesus said, remember, that if he didn't return to put an end to it, no flesh would survive it. So back in our text in verse 6, it says, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, against and blasphemed his name. What a horrible thing to, to do. The one who created you, even the devil, was a created being. You can read that in Ezekiel 28. He was a created being. He is not equal with God. He's not equal with Jesus. The Mormons believe that Jesus and the devil are equals. 
that they're brothers. They haven't read the truth. He's a created being. He was created. But he's going to speak blasphemy against the name of God. And what did Jesus, what did it say in the Psalms? I put my word above all my name. He's going to blaspheme Jesus. He's going to blaspheme the word of God. He's going to blaspheme God the Father. And notice, not only that, but his tabernacle in heaven and also those who dwell in heaven, which is, guess what? That's us. In the angelic realm, you are going to be blasphemed by the devil. How do you feel? (laughs) I'm not going to care because I'm going to be with the king. Amen? I'm going to be with him. I could care less what he says, what he thinks, what he does. We're going to be with Jesus the Savior, the wonderful great King. There's no one like him. Come forward. Anybody who's got the big enough fist, come on. Play King of the Mountain. You're going to lose. Our King wins. Our God wins. Your God, not so much. It's okay to get that excited. Love it. Love it. Notice, it was granted to him, underline that again in verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him, notice, authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Does that sound like every tribe, tongue, and does that sound like worldwide, or does that, is that just like New Jersey? And he gave him power over everyone in New Jersey. Or maybe it would be more appropriate, he gave them power over everyone in New York. No, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we're talking worldwide, a one-world government. Here's a little glimpse of it. We've already looked at a one-world religion, a one-world um, political system, which will, it'll, it'll, be, um, it'll grow on us. We'll, we'll develop that later as we get into Revelation. And next week, we're going to see a one-world economy as well. Those three things, one-world religion, one-world economy, and one world political system. He's going to reign over it all, and he's developing it right now, right under our noses. It's all in play. It's all working very good, and boy, there's a lot of struggles, a lot of struggles even right now, because we are on the verge of it. We are on the verge of it. I told you last week that I was going to share something with you. And I'm just going to give you something to think about. Some of you may not like this, and I don't mean to offend you. If I do, I apologize. But as a pastor, as uh, one of the, the roles of a pastor is not only to feed like we're doing now, to feed the word of God like we've been doing, but it's also to warn. And I believe we are on the verge of something Our country has never experienced. And why? Why do I say that? Because there is so much angst, so much pain, so many things going on right now. We've never experienced anything like it. There are powers that be that are trying to remove us as a country. And you may say to yourself, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Well, let me apologize to you first before I go any further. Some of you have heard me talk about BLM, Black Lives Matter. And I don't want to offend any African-American person here. I know I have because I think a couple of Sundays I mentioned that phrase, and I, didn't, I qualified it one week, and the other week I didn't qualify it. And I think there was somebody here, an African-American couple, and I don't think they liked it. And I don't blame them because I was, I was clumsy. I made the assumption that everybody in the room knew what BLM is all about now. If you don't know what BLM is about, you need to wake up because they are not what you think they are. Black Lives Matter, that is very true. And what they've been through, the black people, what they have been through in our country and in the world has been horrendous. There's no excuse for it. Of course we're heartbroken about that. I am. I don't have any issue with that phrase itself. But the organization is something completely different, folks. They are Marxist in their origin. You can look this up. I've got stuff I can share with you if you want. Okay, I'm not going to spend all the time going through it right now. But you need to understand that this movement is a very powerful movement. 
and they have an agenda. I believe that socialism, and why is this important, what we're reading? I'm not just going to pull this, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't tell you in any other study, but boy, it fits what we're talking about right now. And I've been wrestling with it for two weeks. And some of you, you're probably like, well, that, that's, you know, of course we understand that. It's obvious to us. Well, praise the Lord if it is. But I can't not share what, I, what I'm seeing. And if I'm wrong, I hope I am. I really hope I'm wrong. And if you bear with me for a few moments, I want to share some things with you that hopefully will help you understand. Because there is a one-world government that is trying to form right now. Anything that's in its infancy, it's trying. It's trying so hard. And there are powers and entities that are trying to aid that. And I believe BLM is one of them because they're socialist in their ideals and they want to replace our government. That's why, why is there so much strife in the streets? Is it, is it just because our president... You know, he can be, um, you know, sometimes he can use harsh words and, you know, you may not like his personality, but I like his policies. And forgive me for saying that, but I'm just going to be honest with you. But let me suggest to you that socialism is about globalism. Globalists love socialism. And I can tell you that our president is not a globalist. In fact, everything about him is the antithesis of globalism. Why is there a fight right now? Because our country is on the verge of something that we've never seen before. And it is. We're right on the cusp of it. And it's going to, what's going to happen in the next few weeks is going to determine what direction we're going to go. And believe, make no mistake, it's going to happen. The Bible tells us that it's going to happen. But how long are we going to be able to enjoy what the country that we know right now, how long are we going to be able to enjoy that will be determined in a few weeks, hopefully. Let me read something to you. If you think I'm just uh, crazy, I'm going to read to you some excerpts from this. And bear with me because I know I'm going to go over just a few minutes. So please bear with me because this is important, folks. I've been dying to share this with you. I've been dying inside because I knew that some of you would be really upset with me. And I understand it may seem like a cheap shot right before the election. And I ask for your forgiveness for that. But you know what? I didn't know that I was going to be in this chapter a few weeks before an election. And to apply what we're reading here about a one-world government in the formation and not mention what I see happening would be derelict for me. This book... En Route to Global Occupation by Gary Cause, an excellent book. If you don't have this, I would encourage you to read it. It'll open your eyes. Gary Kaw was a high-ranking government, high government liaison during the Bush administration in the 80s and the 90s. And he was very involved in world matters, economy. He was in, he was in the trenches of the whole thing. And the whole thing was one world order, you know, the, the new world order, the one world government. And he exposes in this book, and he's got facsimiles of documents that he was able to facsimile before, while he still had the uh, credibility, or the, um, the um, what's it, what's it? Yeah, the clearance. While you had the clearance, he, he facsimiled a lot of the stuff and exposes the whole thing. This book was written in 1991 or 92. And let me read to you a few excerpts. If you think I'm nuts about the whole socialism and where our country is headed, if we don't stand up. Read, let me read it to you. And it says, uh, and he's talking about the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, these entities, we might call them the deep state. They are entities that are bent on a global government. They are the same ones who divide up the world into ten regions, okay? The United Nations, and a lot of these figures, they're all involved in these uh, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission. It goes really deep, and their, their core of this whole thing is very satanic. And he exposes the whole thing in this book, a really good book. But let me read to you a few things. Rear Admiral Chester Ward, a former Council on Foreign Relations member for 16 years, warned the American people of the organization's intentions. He's warning us, and he's going to quote here, the organizations, the Council on Foreign Relations, their intentions. And not just them, but a host of other um, entities. 
I quote, the most powerful clique in these elitist groups have one objective in common. They want to bring about the surrender, notice this, they want to bring about the surrender of the sovereignty and the national independence of the United States. Is that what you're seeing right now? A relinquishing of sovereignty and national independence? You better believe it. It's happening right now before our eyes. It couldn't be more pertinent. It couldn't be more applicable what we're talking about right now. A second clique of international members of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, comprises the Wall Street international bankers and their agents. Primarily, they want the world banking monopoly from whatever power ends up in the control of global government. Dan Smoot, a former member of the FBI headquarters staff in Washington and one of the first researchers into the Council on Foreign Relations, summarized the organization's purpose as follows. Listen to this very carefully. The ultimate aim of the Council on Foreign Relations is to create a one-world socialist system and make the United States an official part of it. 1991. Has it been forming ever since then? You better believe it. It's happening. And he goes on, Congressman John Rarick, deeply concerned over the growing influence of the CFR, has been one of the members of Congress making a concerted effort to expose the organization. He says this, the Council on Foreign Relations, dedicated to one world government, financed by a number of the largest tax-exempt foundations and wielding such authority and influence over our lives in the areas of finance, business, labor, military, education, mass communication media, should be familiar to every American concerned with good government and with preserving and defending the U.S. Constitution and our free enterprise system. Yet the nation's right to know machinery, the news media, usually so aggressively in exposures usually so aggressive in exposures to inform our people, remain conspicuously silent when it comes to the CFR, its members, and their activities. And I find that a few university students... Oh, and I find that few university students and graduates have ever heard of the Council on Foreign Relations. The CFR is the establishment. Not only does it have influence and power in key decision-making positions at the highest levels of government to apply pressure from above, but it also finances and uses individuals and groups to bring pressure from below to justify the the high-level decisions for converting the United States from a sovereign constitutional republic into a servile member of the state of a one-world dictatorship. What do you think about that? If he's true, if he's right, we're seeing it right now. BLM is part of it. Antifa is part of it. And why isn't other powers, why aren't they doing anything about it? Let me read to you another excerpt from Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley was the 29th United States ambassador to United Nations. You know what she said just a, uh, actually on the 5th of October, just about six days ago? She tweeted this with this idea of socialism and how it's on the verge of taking over our country. You know what she said? She said, Khrushchev, 60 years ago, and she quotes him, your children's children, he's talking about United States, your children's children will live under communism. You Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright, but we will keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you will finally wake up and find you already have communism. Is that pertinent for what we're talking about? Why do I bring that up? Because as we look at this and we see the one world government sorting to, to take place and all these elements are in order, and this has been an ongoing thing for decades, and if I've offended some of you, I apologize, I really do, but I'm looking at these things and I believe I'm telling you the truth. I don't want to, you know, I never desired to share that, honestly, but it became so overwhelming to me, bringing me to tears. You can ask my wife.
Many of our fathers, our grandfathers, fought in World War II. They fought, some of them, our grand, great-grandfathers, fought in World War I. They fought in Vietnam. My own father fought in Vietnam. This country, folks, was founded on Christian principles. And there is so, many, so much junk out there telling us that it really wasn't the way. But I tell you what, the truth is, is there's a book out. It's called The Light and the Glory. And it, it talks about our Christian roots and where this country came from. We have to uphold that. It's, it's important. That's what makes us unique in the world. We're the greatest country in the world because of that. Are we going to just let it go by? No, I'm not recommending that we get rifles and get crazy. No, no, no. But what I am saying is be prayerful. For heaven's sake, when we have our prayer meeting Tuesday night, come out with us together. Let's pray. And then when you vote, you vote biblically. That's your mandate before God. And I'll be honest with you. I don't care what party it is. If any party, if their tenant, if the tenants of what they believe, if a party embraces homosexuality, if a party embraces abortion, if a party embraces a lot of these other things, as a Christian, I'm voting for the other guy. I must. And that's going to get me in a lot of deep water with some of you. But you know what? I would change my party if tomorrow my party said, you know what, we're embracing all these things. We're embracing LGBTQ. We're embracing the socialist agenda. We're embracing the, we want, we want globalism. We, we're, we're going to embrace the tree. We're going to hug the tree. We're going to go for the Green Deal. If, my, if, if, if whatever I was, if, if that was my party, I'm jumping ship. It's that simple. Do you understand? You can do whatever you want. You're empowered by God. And I hope I'm wrong, but you know what? As the more I look at stuff, the more it's becoming very, very real to me. And that's part of my job, I believe. And I'm going to say it this once, and this is it. I'm not going to talk about the election from here on out. I'm not going to talk about anything I've told you, and I've shared some things with you. It's up to you to look into those things. i got stuff I can share with you. You can find out about BLM. Did you know that on their about page, on their website, they removed the about about us because it was getting so much publicity because of the Marxist ideas that they had in there about dissolving the nuclear family and supporting LGBTQ and many other things that they do. But they removed that page because all of a sudden everybody was hitting on it because they were, they were trying to expose who they really are. They removed the page, but guess what? I've got the page. Before they removed it, I downloaded the page. And other people have too. They knew it was coming. If nobody made a big stink about it, they wouldn't have uh, taken it off because it wasn't really a big deal. But as soon as the, the whiff of it, oh, what are they really about? Oh, go check out that. All of a sudden, they're like, uh-oh, 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 we're losing money, we're losing money, we're losing support, we've got to move this. And so they did. They removed it. You won't find it there. It's gone. See ya. But does that mean that they've recanted? No, their, their, their agenda is very, very solidly in place. And boy, they're almost ready to achieve their goal. We mustn't surrender our country. This country was built on the Christian faith. I'm not ashamed of it. Love this country. What's happening in our country is one of the reasons why we're able to gather together like this as often as we will. I love our country. It's not a perfect country. We still got issues, but I love it. There's parts of me that wishes I was 21 again at this time in history because I gladly sign up and serve. But I grew up, I signed up for selective service. I never got called into the army. But now I'd fight for it if I had to. They called me. 
You know, maybe they'll take an old guy. I mean, I'm not really not that old, but I'm 50. I'll be 51 in a couple weeks. Uh, you know, maybe I can, you know, sit behind a computer and hack something. I don't know. I'd... We will finish Revelation 13 next week. And I'll tighten the loose ends here that we were going to tighten today, but that's what I wanted to share. And for everything that I've said, there's a mountain of evidence behind it. I've saved it. Videos and things that will just corroborate what I'm saying. And if I'm wrong, then you know what? That's okay. I don't think so. I think there's an agenda, I think it's big. And it's very well organized and very well funded, partly by George Soros, who I've actually got the New York Times article of him funding $220 billion and then an additional $70 billion to these organizations like BLM and others. The New York Times article. So, If I hurt anybody's feelings, I'm sorry. That's all I'm going to say. I'm done with it. And I'm so glad to be done with it. You know why? Because like you, I've been suffering with the lockdowns and everything else, and we should, we should take care of ourselves. We need to make sure we do the right things, right, with the masks and the washing our hands and the distancing. We need to do that, especially now in flu season when things are naturally going to kick up a little bit. we got to do those things. But anyway, can I read to you something before we go? I, I want to end on a really much better note. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 10. I know this is running late, and this is the latest day I'm going to take you, okay? But I want to end our time together this morning on something so much better. John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 7, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Notice, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Notice what Jesus said. Remember, we looked at the Antichrist. He was the idle shepherd. But notice who Jesus is. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Notice, I, am, I know my sheep and am known by my own. Are you excited about that? He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. I love my good shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And notice, and other sheep I have, and that's you and I, by the way, because he was talking to the Jews. Other sheep are you. You're an other sheep. I'm so glad. I should, we should get shirts. I am an other sheep. I am the other sheep. And it would be biblical. We should get shirts made up. I am the other sheep.
And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life and that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for myself. And then going down further into verse 27, we'll finish here. Thank you for your patience. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I think that is wonderful. The Lord leads us so gently. He's such a good shepherd. That's what a shepherd does. He, he leads his sheep into the field, and before he gets them out in the field, he goes out and he plucks up all the bad things. He plucks up all the rotten things, all the poisonous things. And see, Jesus does that for us too. Did you know one of the Spirit of God's jobs, if you will, was to show us things to come and to lead us into all truth? It says that in John 14, that he leads us into all truth. I believe we're being led into truth and not lie. When I share with you what I share, I believe that's the truth. But notice, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Notice, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Are you secure in Christ this morning? If you're one of his, nobody can touch you. They can touch your body. What did Jesus say? They can touch your body, but that's all they can do. But you're going to heaven. One day that's going to mean a lot more to us when we see him. Amen? Let's stand together. Be encouraged, folks. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes in the word of God. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of, of a sound mind. And let him love you. Let him love you. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you how you warn us in advance of things to come. We thank you, God, that you are loving like that, Lord. You're the one who goes into pasture before us. And Lord, we give our hearts to you. And again, Father, I pray that if I have unnecessarily hurt anyone here this morning, that they would forgive me. And Lord, I pray that, God, you would open our hearts, open our eyes, knowing that our kingdom is not of this earth, Lord. It's worth fighting for, but it's not ultimately where we will spend eternity. So we know who our Savior is. It's Jesus. He is the only one. And so, Father, we give our hearts to you afresh again today. Help us, Lord. Calm our hearts. Calm our nerves. Pour out your Spirit upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.